Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday. It's February 28th, 2013. Another month is about to fly by. Are you working toward liberty or are you sliding toward oppression? The choice is yours. You're on a sliding scale. You do not get to choose whether you're moving in one direction or the other. You just get to choose which direction you're moving. And if you're not working for personal liberty... You're sliding toward oppression. Remember that as the year ticks by and we head into the last month of the first quarter of the year 2013 already. Where are all those folks that told us about the 2012 Doomsday now? If you've been buying their stuff on eBay and Craigslist, there's some pretty good deals out there. Check it out. A little public service announcement there from your buddy, Jack. Anyway, today I am uh, fortunate to welcome back on the show Mr. Glenn Tate on books four and five of the 299-day series. The books aren't actually, the five and six books are not actually released yet, but they will be very shortly. We'll talk a little bit about the plot lines moving along in the story and just get insights from Glenn in general. And uh, for those that haven't heard of 299 Days or Glenn Tate, Glenn Tate is a pen name that Glenn uses. He is actually a attorney that works in a prominent position in government. He has an insider's view of things, and that's where the entire story gets its angle from, realistic views about what's actually going on at the economic and judicial and uh, legal levels. Before we uh, bring him on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, BulkAmmo.com. Um, I told you guys to stock up on ammo for a long time. I bet you a lot of you guys right now with the scares over gun control and the next ammo shortage are going, damn, we wish we would have done that. Bulk ammo still has a lot of ammo options, though, and some pretty decent deals. Some of the stuff is pretty high-priced right now, but it, the stuff that's high-priced, they have and nobody else does. You, you can either pay more or not get it at all. There's still some great deals right now on shotgun ammo. People haven't seen a snap to that. They went to the 22 long rifle before the shotgun ammo. That might be something you want to look at. But in any event, you need ammo, you need lots of it. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. Uh, I call Safe Castle the original survival podcast sponsor because they sponsored the show when nobody sponsored the show, when we had nobody, literally nobody. Uh, they actually tried when I had almost no listeners, and I'm like, wait till I get it built up a bit. We set up the sponsorship program around them, and they have everything you could think of for your prepping needs, long-term food storage, tactical stuff, practical stuff, you name it, they've got it. Check them out today, Safe Castle Royal. Next, I want to remind you guys, the Walking to Freedom Forum has been launched. It's just a small thing right now. First order of business over the first 90 days of the project is to establish the naughty list. If you're looking to move to a state with more freedom, do not wait for the naughty list to be established, but do write your uh, your goodbye letter so that we can make sure that you get it into the forum once we've got that done. Uh, odds are you're probably moving from one of the states on the naughty list, the eventual naughty list. Naughty list works this way. Uh, everybody goes in. All 50 states are listed. You vote for the 10 that you think are the worst. If you only want to vote for one or two or five, you can do that, but you can't vote for any more than 10. At the end of 90 days, I think it will be clearly evident through what we're calling the process of disapproval voting. Uh, the top five, six, or seven, depending on the preponderance of the evidence that go on the list, uh, they are specifically targeted for people to move out of the rest of the states. It's a jump ball. We're looking for ambassadors from all the states that feel that your state has something to offer over places that are oppressive uh, to make a case for your state, to help people find jobs in your state, not just one person to do it per state, but hundreds of ambassadors, uh, hopefully. And uh, we think it's really a great opportunity to help people uh, use the republic 
And the last check on power of the in the republic is freedom of movement between the states. Your founders set it up that way for a reason. Also, check out 13skills.com with a lot of things that are going on out there. You need to improve your skills on a daily basis by setting a simple goal. 13 new skills in 2013, you can do that. We're working on version 1.1 of the site. A lot of new features are going to be added, including the ability to be a mentor and to help other people. And for, for people that are helped out by mentors to rate their mentors, it is going to be the site for skill enhancement on the internet today. Check out TSP Mint and TSP Gear. Those are two ways you can support the site and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. Please email me before you join. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. Put the term service discount in the subject line, and I will email you back with a discount code to thank you for your service. I don't need a copy of your ID card. I don't need four paragraphs, just like I was in the Army from 86 to 92. I served in Panama, whatever. Whatever it is for you, just a little thing. I'm a paramedic and I work for blah, blah, blah. That's all I need just to get some level of vetting to make sure that military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders are the ones applying for the discount. Yeah, I'm sure some people could cheat the system, but I'm willing to live with that to make sure that I give the discount to those that have earned it. And with that, I've got the housekeeping wrapped up, and it's my good pleasure to welcome back once again to the show the author of the 299 Days book series to talk a little bit about Book 5, to actually talk quite a bit about the state of the Republic, concepts like moving, and even some really novel off-the-wall ideas. Uh, and with that, hey, uh, Glenn, welcome back to the Survival Podcast, man. Thanks a lot, Jack. It's great to be here, as usual. Hey, so, uh, I mean, a lot has gone on. Usually we bring you back, like, right uh, as you or right after you've released a new book in the series. This time we're bringing you back, like, right before you, you release a new book in the series. And instead of a two-book release this time, we're going to have a single book released near the end of March, book number five. So what can you tell us about kind of how the story of 290 Days moves along as we enter into the midway point, book five? Yeah, that's right. Um, well, we start off book five with uh, the tweakers, which, of course, is a term for meth addicts. And uh, the tweakers uh, there at Pierce Point do some bad things. They start stealing from people, and that's just not right. So there's a, a rather dramatic um, scene in which the tweakers are uh, stopped from doing what they were doing. Then we uh, we have a, a justice system, um, an, an ad hoc, um, non-governmental justice system. It's not a bunch of vigilantes or anything. Um, it's a good justice system that, that uh, springs up at Pierce Point. So we go through the justice process. It's not what everybody thinks. Um, it's a lot more complicated and, I think, realistic than just, hey, let's just shoot these people, because I think that's probably not what would happen in reality. I think people would, would do things you know, a right way, and there would be a just result. Then um, we have, at the end of Book 5, some visitors show up, some visitors on the beach. And, uh, and uh, Grant Matson has a difficult choice to make, um, and uh, he makes his choice. So that's Book 5 in a nutshell. And, and interspersed throughout all this, we have some, some states opting out of the Union, uh, a timely topic. That's, that's very interesting. Um, It seems whenever I read a book that goes into this genre, we end up with the concept of state secession. 
And I've been talking about some things recently with it that I'd like to get your, your thoughts on. One is that everybody thinks about secession as being something the state does actively. Like, we've had enough of this crap, we're out of it. But if you look at the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, most of the member states that left the USSR, they didn't really revolt. They, 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 once the, the Union fell apart, some of them just were kind of like, we're on our own now. Like, it wasn't even like a, uh, maybe there was an official act by their, their, I guess they called them a province over there as legislature to declare themselves separate and, 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 and secede. But in many instances, it was more of like, well, crap. I mean, we, we, there's nothing for us to do now. They're not going to help us anymore. And the Soviets didn't send tanks or anything in because frankly, they were cutting the strings. They're like, man, we, we can't do this. I, I just said this week, like, when the Soviet Union fell apart two years after that, the most pissed off man on the planet was Fidel Castro. Yep. You know, a different scenario there, but basically they just left Cuba out to dry, right? So do you think that some of the potential for secession could be more of just a falling apart? Yeah, and that's why I use the, the term opting out, and uh, I talk about uh, in books one through four and a little bit more in the future. Um, that there isn't some big, you know, uh, event. There aren't people with blue uniforms and gray uniforms and two different flags and some big, dramatic, grand, historic kind of declaration that there's going to be a separation. It's an opting out, and it's it's slow and it's fuzzy. It's things like when the central government runs out of money, uh, which it is, uh, and will be, you know, even more so pretty soon. When the central government runs out of money, they no longer can fund their um, their enforcement efforts, and the states, um, you know, especially some states that are they're more liberty minded, are obviously sick and tired of all these federal mandates. So these these liberty loving states, um, when there are no feds around to make them do this stupid stuff, like you know um, the federal you know law that tells you what kind of light bulbs you can have for example yeah um that's an easy one uh when there's when there's no you know EPA official anymore because the central government's run out of money all of a sudden a liberty loving state can say you know what we just thought that this light bulb law was stupid the whole time and guess what uh now it's official this light bulb is law is stupid and we're repealing it and here in our state knock yourselves out, have any kind of light bulb you want. And it sounds small. Oh, it's just light bulbs. It's easy to kind of shrug it off. But you start adding those little teeny things up, oh. and, uh, and pretty soon you can technically have a federal government, and it just doesn't matter anymore. And that's described in the book. I talk about Texas a lot. Um, in Texas, I would call it active nullification, right? So yeah. Constitutional nullification under the Tenth Amendment, the state stands up, they go through the whole rigmarole, they go to the, they go to the court system, it works its way up, if it can't be worked out in, in anywhere, it hits the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says yay or nay. Right? With, uh, like, what I would call active nullification, it's just, we're not flipping doing that. We're just not gonna do that, and you can't make us. And, and I think that a lot of states will stand up and do that at a point where that's the truth, that they can't make them or they don't want to make them, or they've gotten to a point where they got too many of their own problems to try to worry about what kind of light bulb is going into a socket in freaking Idaho, or you know what Texas is doing, considering we have our own electrical grid, and, and the, the whole rest of the country, I mean, this is the honest truth, the whole rest of the country's electrical needs could go to crap, and if we can still burn natural gas, coal, and oil, and nuclear fuel in Texas, we can keep the state's lights on for a long time without any interference, and there's there's different states, that's like one, I know that because I live here, but there's different states that have different things that they have that advantageous to them that would, you know, I'll put it this way. 
You stop letting the bully take your lunch money when you're as big as the bully. Yep. That's right. And when the bully no longer, you know, has lunch your lunch money to bribe other bullies to, you know, be the enforcers, you know, and as far as that nullification thing goes, um we're seeing tangible evidence of it here in my state of Washington state. We passed an initiative uh to decriminalize marijuana and um, you know, a couple of days after that vote, um I was at IHOP with my kids and there's a guy outside um smoking a joint um and uh by the way, I, I smelled that and got pretty hungry. No, I'm just, I had a big plate of pancakes. But no, I'm just kidding. But no, there's an yeah. example. I mean, theoretically, um, you know, it's against a federal law, I guess, if a DEA agent, like, happened to come to IHOP. But I mean, this yeah. is so unlikely. And that's a classic example of people just shrugging and saying, hey, the feds, they're not going to come and get me. I think we're going to see a lot of this, by the way, with, with tax evasion and tax protesting. Um, they don't have enough jails, obviously, to put all the tax evaders in. And so it's just going to be this decoupling of the federal government's control over all these states. And it will be really interesting because different states will do it different ways. Um, as I mentioned, Oh, you mean like they were supposed to in the first yeah, place? Yeah, like the wow. Amendment and the Federalist Papers and, yeah. and about 150 years of history. Um, and you know what? I mean, you and I share a similar, you know, worldview and approach to life. But you know what? If you want to be uh, in California and you want to be a socialist and you want to live like that, knock yourself out. Just don't take my money. When I pay my federal taxes and some portion of my federal taxes goes to bail California out because you guys have bankrupted yourself, that's what I'm opposed to. But seriously – you know, you and I and, and most people listening to this show are open-minded people, live and let live. So if you want to be socialist, knock your own self out. As long as you don't do – see, that's the problem for the socialists. When they have to make a logical case, the only people that they tend to attract are the people that don't produce anything or that produce very little or aren't very good at it or want to take four days a week off. And if you want to live that way, I'm fine, but I don't want to fund your existence, and I damn sure don't want a gunpoint at my head making me fund your existence and, and that brings up another thing that I've been seeing going on a, a lot lately. Glenn can't see me, but uh, I can see him. And there's a there's a there's a hunk of gold there. Um, and, and more and more states are moving towards passing laws that basically monetize gold and silver. And when I look at that, I look at it this way. And you're a lawyer, so this will make a lot of sense to you. And maybe you can even explain it better than I did earlier this week. Um, when they do that, there's really no need to. Because right now, if I want to do business with you and you want to do business with me, and we exchange silver or gold for services or product, there's nothing that stops that. The legal tender law has absolutely no teeth on that at all. All it says is if I advertise a certain price in dollars, I have to accept dollars. Because even yeah. stores say no bill larger than a 20, we don't take pennies, crap like that. So it can already be done. But to me, this is like, so everybody talks about it, and I try to dig in and figure out what is the mindset, what is, what is the, the real game. To me, the real game is this. The second, let's say the state of Texas says, we are officially recognizing silver and gold co coins privately minted of known content as currency within the state of Texas. It's an in-state issue. Interstate commerce does not apply. And if I wanted to go set up the first state Texas bank of Jack, silver, I could do that. And you could come to me and give me your money and I could convert it to silver and you could hold your accounting and finances in silver. Pay your basically do what everybody else in the world is free to do through like the Perth Mint or something like that, but within the state of Texas. No doubt the feds would come after it, 
right? If we did it right now, but you lay the groundwork now so that solution can be rolled out when they can't do it anymore. Exactly, and I, I agree with everything you said about how you could use gold and silver um, for, for commerce like that. Here's another way of looking at it. Let's say the federal government runs out of even more money and things are even more dire than they are now. Um, let's play out how this goes. I'm a lawyer. I think about these things. So um, the federal government goes to federal court, says, hey, Texas, you can't have this law. And Texas says, yeah, I think we can. And a federal judge predictably says, no, Texas, you can't. Okay, then what happens? Well, United States Marshals um, go to what? They go to the state capitol and what? They arrest the governor? And here's the thing that people – I didn't understand this fully until I started getting to know some law enforcement folks um, that are friends and patriots and oath keepers. Uh, a friend of mine is a uh, New York City uh, police detective, homicide detective, um, pretty squared away guy. And he enlightened me about how local law enforcement uh, – totally saves federal law enforcement's bacon. I mean, um, federal law enforcement is, is a teeny, teeny, you know, thing, and they really rely on local law enforcement to get anything done. So if those marshals came into Austin and said, you know, Governor whatever of Texas, um, you're under arrest, I mean, they, they need the local guys to carry that out. So the feds cannot pull off this kind of stuff. And they, I don't think they could really do it now, but later on, as you're alluding to, um, when things are even worse, it's going to be even harder to do. So, you know, the the federal government, I don't think, can pull it off. And, and what you just described is a perfect example. The people of Texas would be way better off. The feds would be shown to be inert and unable to do any of this stuff. And once somebody does that once, once one state does it, it's going to catch on like wildfire. And then the, the, the feds have an enormous problem. So, and here's an interesting thing, right? If we think about the strength of the federal government, and you see it like this big, tied-up, bound fist, I don't see the strength doing this, boom, just popping apart overnight. I see it like this slow slip of their, their tentacles, right? So as that, that slip continues, as the bully gets weaker, as, as you know, somebody bloodies the bully's nose, and somebody breaks the bully's fingers, and the bully can still shove you, but he can't really do what he used to, and, and you're getting stronger on your end, Maybe the state starts to say to its, its, its state employees, well, since silver and gold are now legal tender within the state of Texas, how would you like to be paid? Yeah. <laughs> right? Right? How would you, and, and, and you know, give people the choice, and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I'll take silver and gold. You know, and you, so you get, you know, so now you start having the banking system develop. The states, and you give the person the option. They can have either or, or half and half, whatever, you know, whatever you want. Um, as that starts to kind of, build up some level of momentum, it sets the stage for if you get the final fall where the whole thing falls apart, that state can stand up. And now the state not only has banking going on, but it has state reserves of silver and gold that are officially currency. Not just reserves, but officially currency. So then they can say, well, you know, our own government's falling on its ass and they can't borrow any more money. But sometimes in business and in government, borrowing money does make sense as long as it's done sensibly. So that would enable Texas or Florida or Utah or whoever to turn to another nation and say, well, I know you don't want to loan any money to Washington. We don't want to either. But we've got all of this money in reserves. We've got all these natural resources. We can pay our bills. How's about you loan us a little bit of money to strengthen us while we're asserting our own independence? Yeah, and, and as that state um, was doing all this, their gold and silver reserves, uh, the 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 value of those metals would be going up, up, and up because it would be, number one, increasingly obvious that the U.S. dollar was a joke, and number two, 
there would be a demand for these kinds of, of currencies because, as you mentioned, let's say state employees are getting paid in them. So the value of, of the state reserve of, of currency goes up, which means you've got the ability to borrow and you've got the ability to pay back the loans and not you know just rack up this insane debt. There's actually like a way to pay it back, which is a crazy, crazy concept. Well, and the, I mean, I think the other side is when the, well, the person that says, well, what about the feds with uh, Fort Knox? Yeah. Well, the problem with that is, let's say as much gold as they say is there. If you start analyzing that amount of gold against their debt, they don't have enough gold, even by doubling its value, to simply bring the debt to par. Yeah. Right. So at the point the debt is, what are they going to start doing? Liquidating it, where states that have thrown it into reserve could start monetizing it and putting it in commerce. And I'm not saying that silver and gold are the solution. I'm really impressed with the guys at Bitcoin are doing. I'm learning more and more about that. I'm just saying it is a solution, and it's something nobody argues about. No nation turns to a state or another nation, and, and when they look at a, a loan arrangement, says we don't see that your gold and silver reserves are good as collateral. Of course they do. Yep. Yeah, it would work. It's worked throughout history. That's the thing. You know, nothing we're talking about here today is some made-up theoretical thing. We're just looking back at how countries, you mentioned, break up the Soviet Union, there are a bunch of others, have done things, what's happened, what's worked, what hasn't worked. So we're not making any of this up. Well, I think there's like this whole international stage at play now, too, that aggravates this economic catastrophe. Because I think everybody that listens to this show regularly, and I know you and I are in agreement, that... The financial future of the United States as a whole is bleak. It, it just it, the numbers don't bear themselves out. Um, but then when you're weak, that's when you not, not only do your the, the kids you're bullying in your own schoolyard kind of rear their heads and start to push back, but maybe some of the kids in the other you know schoolyards that you've bullied by proxy start to show up. Yep. So we look at the actions that China are taking right now. So I want your thoughts on this. I just had a listener email me and said I was going to buy a house in, I think, Sacramento. Or, yeah, I think it was Sacramento, California. And the real estate agent said, be prepared for a bidding war. And the guy said, what? You know, that freaking market is on its ass. Please, what bidding war? And he said, there are thousands of Chinese waiting in line to buy every house that becomes available for cash. Because there's a program that shortcuts them to citizenship if they do. Yep, exactly. I've, I've heard of this in, in other regions. Um, this is going on a little bit in Seattle, too. Um, so, yeah, no, it doesn't surprise me a bit, and you, there is an international component to it. And uh, we, should, we should expect it, and we shouldn't you know, be afraid of it. We should say, okay, how can we use this to, to our advantage? Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully not selling uh, all of our assets in the United States. But, yeah, no, it's, it's international. Everything's international now. So, okay, let's... Uh, Let's play in that field. I mean, states play in that field. And by the way, the state of Texas goes and basically enters into a treaty with another country. That, of course, <laughs> violates the U.S. Constitution. But I get back to this question. How many U.S. Marshals does it take to make the state of Texas do what a federal judge says? More than they got is the answer. More than they got. Well, that is the answer. That is the answer, and it's interesting because another book I read has a very similar bent to it from, I think, a totally different direction involving Texas. I think it's, I think it's very possible, if not probable. I look at certain states and go, who's most likely to either go into active nullification or true breakaway mode? And Texas is always at the top of the list for a lot of reasons. But one, the fact – I know I already said it, but the fact that you can run your own electrical grid because – one recourse the federal government would have if Florida did it is just 
to shut the power off to Florida. Yeah, and you've been to Florida in the summer without electrical oh, air conditioning. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about an exodus. There you go. So, I mean, there would be a whole lot of things to do for Florida to basically take its infrastructure um, independent, but Texas could do that tomorrow. We, we export energy, and I don't just mean in raw form. I mean in, in, as electricity. We're the, the leading producer in the world for wind energy. There's, well, I wouldn't say the world, the country anyway. Um, I'm not sure if it's the world, but we produce more wind energy for all the flack we get for being dirty oil and gas producers. We're producing more wind energy than anybody right now, and we're still building more of it. So I, I just look at that, and I go, see, the, the, the problem for the federal authorities, if Texas does something because they can – it actually turns it to a point where other states now have to say, well, if they can do it, you know, it's like, it's like your kids, you know, like once you let one kid do something, unless it's a clear age difference and a privilege thing, you, you're kind of stuck with letting them all do it. Yeah. Well, I'm, I look at Washington state. Um, I don't know that we'd have the political will here to do it, but we have enormous hydroelectric uh, dams sure. and electrical generation facilities that we can't do much with and we can't expand and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, when I was a kid, electricity was virtually free in the state of Washington. Everyone had electrical baseboard heaters in their house and everything else because we could use our own stuff. And then that changed. So, yeah, every state would start doing well, this. Here's, here's an interesting twist on that, right? So, effectively, people that are operating the western grid could basically shut down Washington's power. And, and there wouldn't be a lot that Washington could do to make the grid work inside Washington, at least anything other than intermittently, because everything's interconnected. But you can turn off the, the, the turbines. Mm-hmm. And right? So it's like, if we don't get no power, you don't get no power. Yeah. Right? And, and, I mean, all of a sudden you're looking at the West Coast going dark. for. I mean, you, then you're looking at, well, there's Hoover Dam. And, you know, in that situation is – is Nevada going to be like, yeah, we're really like big time loyalists? Or I mean, when you look at the Nevada vibe, it, we'll turn ours off too until everybody gets power. I mean, there's all it, this is like people always look at it like the, the the federal government's so big, but it's not like state governments are tiny. I mean, most of our states are on par in size with other small nations. Uh, states like Texas and you know, California is doing it wrong, but just from a, a size and population standpoint, are on par with other fairly large, major player nations. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, you know, Texas has probably got. I'm making this number up. Someone will probably correct me in the show notes or something, but probably I don't know what fifteenth, twentieth largest economy in the world. I mean, if California is at like number ten, you know, Texas is probably in that league somewhere. And states can do a whole lot. And what used to stop states in the past, I think. Well, first of all, it was the fear of the federal government. But now I'm talking about state politicians, and that's a topic that you know I know something about. Um, politicians in states were afraid of doing these sorts of things because the population in their state didn't support it. But now people are looking at you know the debt clock, and they're looking at we got crisis number 47 this week with the whole sequesterization thing. And people in states are looking at this and saying, you know, the federal government – Number one is too big. Number two is failing. And number three, maybe we can pull some of this off without these clowns in Washington. And so now at the state level, the state political level, state politicians are realizing that it might not be so unpopular to tell the federal government that we're going to have light bulbs any dang way we want light bulbs. See, and that's the thing, that political incentive, that political profit motive, I guess, for politicians to stand up to the federal government is when the thing unravels. 
Well, it's that plus it's a realization that you get to a point where the federal government, when it wants to enforce all of these mandates, funded and unfunded both, across all 50 states, becomes strapped enough to they realize, well, we're going to have to pick and choose. We, we, we can't make them do everything that we want them to do. So some of you're going to start, what's the old saying, when you get married, you're told by either side, you're, 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 you know, the wife's told by the mother and the son, if there's any brains at all in the family, is told by the father, pick your battles. Yep. Right? So once they start having to pick their battles, it's like somebody pulls that little string out of a towel and it all starts to kind of come apart. And, oh, let's, let's see what else is under there, you know, and you start doing the, the two-handed pull. Yeah, and, and the federal government will pick its battles, uh, and the main thing they're going to care about is tax money, um, and the IRS uh, is something they're going to care a lot about, and the EPA is something they're going to care very little about. So that's what's going to happen, and it happens all <laughs> over the world, right? I'm sure the Soviet Environmental Agency you know, was getting its dictates ignored you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, just like I think the EPA is going to have its dictates ignored in this decade. There's something that people that are in the oppressive side of things and are known as being oppressors, and I'm not saying that anybody here that we see anyway is as oppressive as the KGB were in, in the Soviet Union, but there's a lesson there. I have a good friend named Val Ryazanov who was a KGB agent in the Soviet Union, and immediately at the fall, he went to the United Kingdom. And I asked him why, and he said, because I'm not the bad guy you think I am. But I had a label. And at that point, I had two choices for my own safety and the safety of my family. Join the Russian mafia or get out of the country because no one else would have me. And I think there's a danger for some people in this nation of ending up in that kind of a status if you end up with some level of a collapse, a partial collapse, which is more what you describe as a partial collapse, not a, a complete total collapse. Yeah, no, and I, I, I see that happening. There are going to be a lot of good, decent people who are government employees, and they might even work for agencies who do bad things, and they're going to be uh, labeled, and there's going to be reprisal stuff. I mean, I, I hate to even talk like this, but I think it's going to happen. And I, do, you, do you worry about it personally? I mean, with your for those that haven't heard you before that are new to the show, you work as a, a legal person. Uh, in a fairly high uh, point in government, where you—that's why you know all this crap. You see it happen day to day. Do you worry that even though you are very much a libertarian-minded individual, that in this type of scenario you could l get labeled as one of those government pukes? Um, no, I, I'm not actually worried because I'm going to melt away, and uh, <laughs> and I I have pretty elaborate um, and I think very concrete. Um, plans in place, and so I'm not personally worried, but there are friends of mine um, yeah. who, and, and some of them are described in the book, um, who are going to have this problem, and I'll do everything I can to help them out, because I know they're good people and all of that, but um, no, there's going to be some of that, and I don't know what to do about it except to say to people, and thank goodness you know, I can come on your show and say this to tens of thousands of people, um, don't go out and and hunt people down. Don't don't do reprisal stuff. Don't don't go on offense. There's no need to, and it's wrong. And so keep that in mind. Because here's a big thing, and you're gonna see this in book ten. I'm not giving anything away, but the big it's alluded to in the prologue, so it's it's not a big surprise. 
we're going to have to, after this thing falls apart and we put it back together, this country, or countries, plural, um, we're going to have to work together and we're going to have to get along. And there's, there are two paths to go. And it's alluded to in books one and two, but I'll just close the loop for you. And that is there's the American Revolution path and there's the French Revolution path. The American Revolution path, by and large, when the war was over, people got back together. They went back into business and they didn't have these revenge things, this, you know, uh, Hatfields and McCoy thing. They didn't do that kind of stuff for the most part. Um, the French Revolution went the opposite way, and it was decades of, of reprisals and, and all this kind of stuff. And so if we're going to have a decent life after this thing falls apart, we need to not hate each other and, and go and do revenge stuff. So, you know. <laughs> and it's really important that we get that because, you know, some people think, well, it's not going to happen here, it can't happen here. If you contrast the end of the revolution and basically, okay, you either leave or stay and we're all going to do this together now, um, and getting enough strength to resist the oppression again, just to, you know, a few decades later in the War of 1812, with the aftermath of the Civil War in this country, yeah. we were in between. We did not go French Revolution, but we didn't have the cooperative spirit of a new nation like we did um, and, and, I mean, you could also make an argument that a tremendous amount of liberty was lost due to the Civil War. It's one of the most interesting times in history and one of the most conflicting for me because I look at it and go, Lincoln crapped on the Constitution and, and then freed the slaves. So it's like, ugh. But, you know, he's also a guy that wrote a letter, I don't remember to whom, but it basically said, if I could free, if I could preserve the Union, by freeing the slaves, I would. If I could preserve the Union by not freeing a single slave, I would. And if I could preserve the Union by freeing some and not freeing others, I would do that too. Basically, I'm doing this to my own political agenda of preserving the nation. That was the goal, and he would have done whatever. So it's like, it just was expedient. I mean, that's why the Emancipation Proclamation was signed over two years after the freaking war started. Yeah, and, and, and Lincoln was was no saint on on racial stuff but you're right it was a it was a political thing to do and and yeah the reconstruction era um after the civil war is actually something um i looked into quite a bit when i was crafting um books nine and ten um and and thinking about what it's going to look like um uh, politically and economically and and i think the reconstruction era in large part was a bad model uh, we could do a lot better um and the short version of that is we could with free markets and people voluntarily doing things, we could do a much better job of rebuilding than, than having a huge federal government that told states that uh, the people they elected to the United States Senate weren't going to be senators and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and I think that like another thing that we have to look at here, when you were talking about don't go out looking for revenge, don't go out looking for reprisal, um, the people in power actually will want you to. It will give them an excuse to bring whatever boots they have left down on people's necks and, and go through the whole martial law thing. But it, additionally, the two sides or three sides or four sides that will square off will all be fighting with the people that didn't do it, right? The people that are actually in control of this crap will always defer. Right now you have Democrats and Republicans, and I don't mean in the House or the Senate, I mean on the streets, hating each other, 
And they actually agree on like 90% of things. And a lot of what they disagree on, they've been misdirected on. Like, I believe that everybody would fall pretty close to the libertarian model. Maybe not as much as me, but somewhere in that realm. If you removed all the distractions and misdirection and, you know, pulling a, a rabbit out of somebody's hat or out of their ass, you might as well say, um, and got it out of the way. But that, if that tells you if in, let's call it peacetime, that your leaders will pit you against your fellow Americans, then you damn well they'll, new, they'll do it during a crisis. And, and the way I try to put it to people is, we have to understand that in this country today, like at Christmas and, and, and Thanksgiving, when families get together that don't see each other much from across the country, there are brothers who have cursed brothers to their face, sons that have cursed fathers, fathers that have cursed sons to their face, defending politicians that have never done a damn thing for them. And that's a very dangerous microcosm of the dynamic at play of the entire nation. And, and we, we have to be prepared to cap that as quickly as possible. Because some of it's going to happen. There's people out there, they're not going to listen. They don't care. They're going to be scared. They're going to be afraid. They're going to be hurt. They're going to be angry. But there needs to be some group of society that says, we're not letting it happen, at least not here. Exactly. And I think what's going to happen in the rebuilding phase um, after the collapse is that uh, people will have just a practical need to not fight with each other. Now, the, the political people, and they won't even be political people. They'll be, I don't know, they might be military people. They might, I mean, they might be um, gigantic gangs or something like that. We are going to try to have people pitted against each other. But if that guy you really hate because he voted for the other guy for president a few years ago is the guy who knows how to run a water treatment plant, um, put it aside, um, and let's get some fresh water flowing, and we can deal with this political stuff later. And it's going to take yeah. leaders who say, yeah, 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 whatever. Do you, do you and your kids enjoy fresh water? Because I sure do. It's going <laughs> to have to be that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things I hope to do with this book series is kind of plant that seed with people now so they're, they're thinking, I think, the right, decent, productive way and we don't have a French Revolution outcome because it never works. That's the thing. It never works. We got lucky in this country, I think, after the, the – I almost said the first Revolutionary War. God, I hate even saying stuff like that. But after the Revolutionary War in the 1700s, um, we got lucky because we, we didn't have as much retribution. And I think that, that you know we've been enjoying the dividends of that for a couple hundred years, and we need to – Still think that way and have that be the model, um, or it's going to be, it's going to be ugly, ugly, ugly. You know, and I'm working on a new initiative. We talked a little bit about when we talked off air before we got started today, and I'd like your thoughts on how it fits into this model overall. Our founders tried to give us every single check and balance against the growth and impeding, uh, stomping foot of government that was possible. They gave us a, a democratic republic where people could elect their leaders, but the individual sovereignty and the sovereignty of the member states were protected by the Constitution. If you read the Constitution, and specifically the Bill of Rights, it does give the framework and, and powers of government, but it's a document that's far more restrictive on government than citizenry. It's a list of things that they're not supposed to do, they're not allowed to do, and the things that they are allowed to do, how they're supposed to do them. But they also knew that that would only have so much strength. So the individual states then were to compile their own constitutions and assert certain things. And, you know, we had the Tenth Amendment that said, you know, if, if, if the, the, the states, 
It, it doesn't say that the federal government can do it. The states have a right to nullify, basically. And, and so we had all of these. And then they gave us three branches, a legislative, an executive, and a judicial. Then they gave us a jury system. Right, yeah. so that you were tried by a jury of your peers. So that, that there was another check that if they pass a law that says you can't smoke pot, right? And I don't want to smoke pot. I know you don't want to either. But if I am of the moral opinion that the government doesn't have a right to regulate a freaking plant, and I end up on a jury, I can just go not guilty, right? And if I get enough of the people on the jury to do the same thing, we we nullify that law. We, so there was another check, but the ultimate check, and I think it's. It's like the only thing that preserves any liberty beyond a shooting war is freedom of movement within the republic. Because since the states absolutely can do more to either provide liberty for or take away from their citizenry, citizens have that choice that when a state continually behaves stupidly, New Jersey, to get up and go to somewhere else. And I think when we look at society as a whole in America today, that there's like five, six, seven estates that are so bad that almost anybody other than somebody that just loves big government goes, yeah, they're the worst. So I have this new initiative to get people from those states to move, not just to the free state of New Hampshire, but to any state of their choosing and to allow people to interact so the person doesn't just go, I'm out of New York and I'm going to go to Pennsylvania. So that person can say, well, let me check out Pennsylvania. Maybe it's been a bit cold up here in New York and PA. Maybe, maybe South Carolina is the place. Maybe Georgia. Let me talk to people in those states. Let me see what it's like there. Let me find the best match and let me go there. Because I don't know about you, but there's certain places I don't want to make my stand. And Illinois, New York, Connecticut, California are high on my list of places I don't want to be anywhere near when this thing comes apart. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, as far as California goes, uh, you and I have similar musical tastes. Uh, you need to check out a song by Jamie Johnson called What You Gonna Do When Half of California Riots. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it's a great song. Uh, but anyway, uh, no, back to a serious topic. You're exactly right. Um, people in this country get to vote with their feet. It's one of the ultimate um, checks on government. Um, it's right up there with the Second Amendment, in my view. And it's practical. It works well, much like the Second Amendment. Um, and so people are already moving to places, and I love this idea of yours, you know, about people being able to exchange information. I get a lot of personal messages on the on the Survival Podcast forum from people who know I'm from Washington State, and and they'll say, "Hey, I'm thinking about moving to Washington State. You know, which part of the state do you think would be best? What?" And they'll have specific questions. What's the job climate for this? Or do you know some people? And I've and I've you know worked with people, and and one guy tried to get him a job even, you know, and that sort of thing. But see, that was just two people, and that wasn't big enough, and it needs to be bigger than this. And the other thing I love about this idea is that when it's going to get as big as it's going to, um, this is a really easy story for a newspaper reporter or a TV producer to do. You just go to this website, and you're going to find all the human interest stories and all the real stuff, you know, you could possibly need, and so then the word will get out more, and people will will vote with their feet, which means here are all the great things that happen when a liberty-minded person leaves a bad state. Um, number one, they go to another state and strengthen that state. Number two, they take their money, um, they take their job um, perhaps, they take their kids out of that public school, and they are no longer feeding with their tax money this bad government. And then another great thing happens. Their neighbors look around and they say, 
wow, Jack moved to Texas. He seems like a pretty normal, squared-away guy. I wonder why he did. Oh, yeah, he told me that taxes are too high and they passed stupid gun laws. And maybe people say, well, that could be me too. And so it gets going this way. It's entirely peaceful, number one. And number two, by people leaving to go to a better place, it's – it's entirely voluntary. People are doing it because it's in their best interests, you know, and, and that is always a good combination, peaceful and in somebody's best interests, and, and it, it's what needs to happen. And so I would love it. I'd love to be able to have an organized way to um, tell people some of my thoughts about places in Washington State that would be good and, and places to avoid. Um, by the way, I've just decided that I'm going to stay in Washington State. Um, I'm not sure why I've come to this conclusion. I just keep coming back to it. Um, you know, but anyway, um, I I believe. Well, no, hold on. That's a great point because I've already been attacked for this. Like, you're going to take all the good people out of New York, and I'm like, I'm not. I don't even use the term good people and bad people, right? Yeah. Because I just think that there's people that are tired of oppression, and all I'm saying is, if you're really tired of oppression, and you contact me or somebody else in the state of Texas, and you look at what we have to offer, and you say this is more in line with what I'm looking for, we'd love to have you, and. I, I can see why somebody would want to stay behind. I'm just saying that, not me, and that some people are going to stay. But that doesn't, just because you are like, I'm going to stay and draw the line in Washington, I'm sure you could give me a pretty good list of reasons to leave. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and it's, it, it starts with, with my family. Um, my family loves this state, and, and I love my family. And there's about 90% of the calculation right there. But uh, no, and, and, and not everyone's in that in that situation. And um, believe me, um, I've thought long and hard. There, you know, there could be events, um, especially if Washington were to pass ridiculous gun control laws, which they have not. By the way, they've all died in the uh, state legislature, as I kind of thought they would. As messed up as the state is, we've actually got decent gun laws. But um, if something like that happened, I would really have a huge decision uh, to make. And um, uh, and right now, you know, I would lean towards staying here. And uh, but at least, but see, here's the thing: I'm not just staying here in Washington State to stay here. Um, by me staying here, I'm going to be able to help out a lot of other people. There'll be people maybe coming to Washington State, um, and I can, you know, be the welcome wagon for them. Um, and I got a lot of other things that I won't talk about. Well, and you have a great place to draw from in California. Yeah, that's right. I mean. You know what I mean? So here's part of why, why I look at this. When, when I originally came up with this idea, and I was talking to a few people about it, the thought was, well, what we'll do is we'll pick the five crappiest states, the five best states. And I'm like, well, you know, Texas is going to be on the list. And, well, would they if I did it completely objectively? And, and the answer is, I don't really know because two individuals will, uh, will, will absolutely define liberty differently. Right. So because liberty is about, well, what do you want to do with it? So I may look at Texas and I may say to myself, you know, there's certain things because no state's perfect. Right. We all have problems. And I may go, these are some of the things I don't like, but I can live with those and I can I can accept that as, as part of where I'm living. Somebody else may look at that and go, absolutely not. So my thing was, like, we're not going to have a top 10 or top 15 or top five. We're just going to have the worst. Because I think that people, and by the way, I don't think Washington's going on that list. I don't, I don't think it is a bastion of, of, of libertarian principles. I really don't. But I think there's a lot of libertarian-type folks there, uh, and I think there's enough of them that they've held the line. I think certain states, we've lost. Yeah. I, I think New York State, 
I think Illinois and I think California, and I hate to say it because I, I, I guess they're going to probably end up there if we do it objectively, but I don't think it's really going to be easy to attract people from. But Hawaii, I think those states, they're gone. They've lost it. They're just, there's no pulling them back until they hit the brick wall. And I'm of the opinion with some of this brick wall stuff, we're better off going ahead and hit it. Let, let's, let's, because the longer we wait, people think, well, the more time we have, we're buying time, we're buying time. No, the airplane's getting higher. That's, that's all we're doing right now. We're, we're getting to a point where you're like terminal velocity and something's going to accelerate you past that, that we've, we've, we've gotten away with this for so long. It's actually at a point now where people are going to get more hurt the longer it lasts because in spite of the work you're doing with your books, in spite of the work that I'm doing, there's a small fraction of people that are going to wake up and, and be prepared. Yeah, and boy, you know, you talk about the brick wall and everything and states, you know, becoming worse and worse. When people move from California uh, to, say, Washington State, um, provided they're kind of the liberty-minded people that are leaving California for the right reasons, and most of the people leaving California are leaving for the right reasons. It's not like they're going somewhere so they can get more welfare, right? Because you can't beat California, so that's where you're going to stay. <laughs> so the people yeah. coming up here, yeah. I love it because, first of all, they're usually liberty-minded and, and productive people, and that's they're always welcome. The other thing I like is that, and this comes from my political perspective and experience, the more uh, the the remaining decent people leave uh, a state, the more concentrated it gets with bad people. For example, the more statists in the California legislature, it'll go from being 80% statist to like 85 to 90% statist or whatever. I'm making these numbers up, but you get the idea. And then, then politically, the state of California or Hawaii or New York or wherever will do increasingly ridiculous, reckless short-sighted things because they're out of control. I mean, it's like, hey, we can't get unelected. Let's do every crazy left-wing nutty thing we can possibly think about. And then the state of California, for example, keeps getting worse and worse. Their budget deficit gets bigger. Their taxes go up. And it accelerates the cratering of a place like California and people in the rest of the country. Not that I wish anything bad on the people of California. I'm just saying the people in the rest of the country go, Wow, have you seen California with its third? Yeah, we don't want to do that, right? Yeah. I mean, that's what I'm trying to draw. I want to make the comparison so obvious. This is the consequences of this behavior. Exactly. And you can't do that if, if you don't have it obvious what, you know, what the two systems are. And so it's, it's great and it's freedom and it's voluntary and, and it's legal. My goodness. I mean, you know, that's a good plan. That's a good program, right? I'm sure at some point I'll be called a seditionist or something for suggesting that you move from one state to another by some, you know, left wing think tank or some crap like that. But to me, I mean, you're, you're basically going against everything that the founders agreed upon. Because the founders didn't agree upon a lot. When you really start, like you read the Federalist and any Federalist papers, and you read the early history, the arguments between Adams and Jefferson, when you look at all that, the founders disagreed about a lot of things. But there were some core principles that they agreed upon. The concept that the nation was to be a republic was one of those things. And if you don't have movement within the republic, freedom of movement and freedom of choice, and some level of power by the member states to conduct business their own way, you don't have a republic. Because people have asked me, you know, what about forming the Republic of Texas if there ever is uh, a secession movement? I'm like, well, the first thing we'd have to do is establish which, which provinces. Is it going to be the counties? Is that practical? There's 250 of them. And they look at you like you have a lizard coming out of your ear, you know? Because like, they never even thought about it that way. But it's like, if, if Texas was to be a standalone republic, it can't just be 
Texas state law. There's got to be some level of power handed down to smaller areas. And that means that people in Austin might choose to do things differently than people in Fort Worth, and they might do things differently than people in Lubbock, and they have to leave each other the hell alone. And they have to let them, they have to let each other do that. And then the state's constitution says, you can do whatever you want, except here's some things you cannot do to your citizens. And then it's incumbent upon the federal government, which at this point would become the, the Republic of Texas, to step in and say, Lubbock province, you cannot pass a gun ban because that violates you know, an amendment that's already on our constitution. I, I think that's one of, our, one of our people down here in the statehouse pointed out. He said it doesn't matter what they do as far as banning guns at the federal level. There's a level that's protected here in this state by our own constitution. Yeah, We won't allow it. And one of the reasons that this would work out so well if if liberty minded people like us you know could could have this happen is that we are actually and genuinely tolerant, for example, in my state, Seattle left wing you know kooks and everything else, hey, knock yourselves out, they have some ridiculous laws there, they have a, a ridiculous tax structure as long as you're not hurting me, great because see this thing doesn't work uh if people are are telling everybody else how to live because we've seen how that goes and it doesn't go well. And so this is why, this is my point, this is why this could actually work is because we would be tolerant. And people, for example, um, let's say they're, they're lefties and they really love how Austin is. Cool. You don't have to leave Texas. Let's say you're productive and you're contributing to the tax base. You get to stay in Texas and nobody bugs you. And, and it just works out because it's all voluntary. So, yeah, that's why this can work, which is to say the other way of doing it, the current federal way, isn't working. And because, see, that's the thing. Libertarians like us, we've got the facts. We know that if, if our way can, can be done, if, if we're allowed to just have things go the way we want them to go, we always win because it's always demonstrably better the way we do things, and that's book four, book three and four. Um, Pierce Point is a mini republic. They do stuff on their own. Um, and, and guess what? They have medical care. They, they have a meal uh, card program. They have a, a parcel service, for goodness sakes. They have a library. And you look out at the government-controlled areas, and it's, it's you know chaos and anarchy. So guess what? When you show undecided people two choices – they always go with the choice that makes the most sense, and that's us. Yeah, I, I am of the opinion that if you want, you know, to have socialism, as long as I'm not compelled to participate, you can have, I mean, a kindergarten classroom is a socialist environment. I'm fine with kindergarten being socialist. And if you and 20 of your hippie, hippie friends want to eat granola, contemplate your navel, share everything on your little social, uh, social uh, what do you call it, commune or something like that. And even if you want to ban 50 or 60 of them together, if you can pull it off, I'd like to see it. It's been tried. doesn't work really well. Um, but if you want to do that, I, I, I will support your effort with good thoughts. That's all you're getting from me, though, because I have my own way of life that I advocate for, and that gets my time, my talent, my money, and my investment uh, on all levels. And I think that is a free society. That's a truly free society. And the problem is that people on the other side just don't seem to get the fact that it can't work without uh, co coercion and without force. And, and if you ask most, and I don't mean government socialists, most 
socialist-minded, progressive-type people in this country? Are you for the use of force on your fellow citizen? As an instant response, they'll say, absolutely not. That's their, that's their core value. But as soon as they start realizing their thing won't work, they'll go, it's just that person being unreasonable. It's just that. And all of a sudden, it's force everywhere. And, and, and that leads us down this, this road uh, of abysmal failure. But then the republic's the correct, correction. Because that takes it up at a much bigger level. If you look at the economy of Texas compared to the economy of New York right now, the ability of the state to balance its checkbook, how much of your own paycheck you get to keep, how much it costs to live in a three-bedroom house on a freaking quarter acre, there's no question which economy is doing better. And, and it's ridiculous that Texas is because New York City is the capital of the world. There, there's no way Texas should have a better economy than New York. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. You know, there's a, there's a, I, I hate to revert to bumper stickers, but sometimes bumper stickers have a lot of wisdom in them. And, uh, one of my favorites is socialism. Ideas so good, they're mandatory. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I mean, okay, you have this insider seat. Is there any doubt in your mind that what's leading this nation into financial oblivion is one form or another of socialism? We can call it fascism, which I think is more accurate, but that's national socialism. So it is a socialism mindset, a progressive mindset, a big government Republican mindset. It's a big government mind, social justice mindset that's, that's heading us there, correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you had to boil down the problems, in my view, in this country... Uh, to one word, it would be socialism. It really is socialism, um, and and I don't, I, don't, I'm, I didn't look that definition up on Wikipedia. Um, off air, I'll describe to you why um, I, I know quite a bit about socialism actually, and I'll leave it at that. But um, no, it truly is socialism, and um, that's that's what means that we spend too much money. We don't care about liberty. Everything we're talking about um, is is all coming down to that. And you know, if you would have said five, ten years ago that there would be a, objectively speaking, realistically speaking, a, a socialist uh, economy, a socialist political system in the United States, I would have said, "Oh, come on, you know, come on, that's just that's just." I mean, I'm a realist, and you know, that's just crazy talk. Um, any way you measure it, uh, that's what we have, and it is it is everything. Some people focus. Um, on kind of moral decay and everything, and I think that's an aspect. I think that's fueled by the government taking over for where you know families and religious institutions used to, you know, have have some say in people's lives and everything. But I don't think it's it's a, a moral stuff's a component, but it's not the driver. It is the government doing too much and doing bad stuff, and it it absolutely is socialism, and people are figuring it out. Um, and I say welcome. Yeah, and I think the, the the problem we still have is that the nation is so perfectly divided. And when I say perfectly, I don't mean like split down the middle. I mean like expertly divided. The politicians that have done this have convinced each other that we are each other's enemies. because, And they've done it with social issues. And I don't mean socialist styles, but with questions of morality. And there's clear-cut morality issues. You and I would agree that if I walk up to you on the street, you've done me no harm, and I punch you in the face, that's wrong. But there's other social issues like marijuana. You and I, I don't think you and I will be sharing a doobie anytime soon. We really yeah. won't. Choose not but, to volunteer. Right, choose not to. But it, it, there are people that believe the whole world would end. Right, the whole the whole country would just fall apart. Cats and dogs would live together. Children would have parents instead of parents having children. The the whole it, it would just be gone 
if, if God forbid this ever happened. And, and the reality is there's a huge number of people in this country every day burning a doobie. You don't know who they are, and they don't bother you. You know, I've, I've read about people getting keyed up on cocaine and throwing somebody through a window. The only thing I've ever seen a person do when they're done smoking a joint is eat a Twinkie, and they can't even do that anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> what, and what, a, what a statement that is, right? Like Twinkie, the freaking Twinkie could not survive unions. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Unions killed the Twinkie, and some people still think they're a good idea. Yeah, unions <laughs> are a good idea. Well, don't you think that's another that's another anchor on the country, especially in, in the um, the states that aren't right to work states, where a person, by the very nature of acquiring a job, becomes a union member, pays a union due with no choice. Yeah, and I see it. Um, I see the the practical political effects of that in my state, um, Washington. Uh, you know, public employees, um, for the most part, um, are required to be unionized, and that was a relatively new change. Happened about six years ago. Before then, state was chugging along. It was not doing great, but it was chugging along, and I can see the effects now um, of this mandatory unionization. Now the unions are involved in absolutely every uh, legislative, public policy decision, budget decision, because if they don't like it, all their employees in the state agencies and the local governments, you know, are told, you know, to to not enforce this or something like that, or to make, to go about it slow. So you've now got this this partner in every decision that needs to be made, and it's and it's the unions, and so that is a, a big, big problem. Public employee unions particularly are a problem. I, I've never really been around private sector unions and don't really have any thoughts on They're them. not much better, but yeah. I mean, they have, the problem with the, the criminal behavior of unions, and many of them do conduct what is truly criminal behavior, and it's almost legalized criminal behavior in certain areas, is the government unions have more access to the criminal politician to coerce them. Right, so they have greater initial access, um, where the, the private union has to use money to gain access, where the the public union uh, has the money and the instant access to go with it. But I mean, I, I've never really thought about it like this. But wouldn't you say union dues are a tax? Oh, absolutely. It's a mandatory program taking money out of my paycheck because I have a certain job. Yeah, and it gets spent in ways that. If I don't like, I have no recourse, but there's this thin kind of theoretical thing that, oh, I can vote in union elections and I can kind of influence how the money's spent. No, you can't. No, you can't. <laughs> well, and I mean, okay, so then if we're looking at it that way, once you give somebody the power to tax, don't you, haven't you in fact created a state? So we could actually say that the unions are like a micro-state existing within the mega-state enforcing their own laws and regulations as though they were a state. Now, that's not a liberty-oriented thing. Now, I don't have a problem with a union because I have to let other people do what they want. I have a problem with compulsory unions. And there's a lot of people in these states that are going, you know what, if I didn't have to be in a union, you guys wouldn't get my money every month. Oh, look at Indiana. Um, I, the number I saw was that as soon as Indiana public employees went from forced unionization to right to work, I want to say uh, union membership dropped by 95%. The unions were out of money. They didn't have any more dues money, and they were freaked out, which is the reason why they go after Governor Scott Walker in Wisconsin and other things when these things are going out because it, you know, it's pocketbook stuff for the union bosses. Here's another reason that public sector unions um, are a really terrible idea, uh, and that is that 
when you've got a, a public sector union, quote, negotiating um, with a politician, uh, the negotiation goes something like this. Hey, politician, I got a jillion people on my email list, and they're all going to vote for whomever I say, and they're going to wave yard signs, and they're going to make phone calls, and they're going to do all this grassroots stuff, and they're going to endorse you. You want to get elected anywhere? Get the firefighters endorsement. I mean, you're golden, right? And the and the police officers endorsement. So there's this all this huge political benefit to getting these endorsements. So the politician says, "Yeah, boy, I, that'd be awesome. Um, I could really use that help." So uh, how much money was it again that you guys want? And see, that's not a negotiation. So you don't have any check on on the unions um, or the politicians, the politicians, and this is what did in California. When the history books are written, this is what everyone's going to realize did in California. The politicians kept giving stuff to the public sector unions over and over again. The public sector unions kept electing the people that gave the unions everything, and it's this this spiral that just gets worse and worse and worse, and that's why it's a problem, in my view. Now, just again, to help people catch up that maybe have not read your other books, and don't know about your professional position, you work inside of a, an organization where you're deep in the belly of the beast, so to speak. And I've got a question for you now that should make people – I know what your answer is going to be, right? And it, it should make people that are like, eh, I don't think it's really that bad, shudder when they hear what you're going to say here. But the people that you're working with and around, the ones that don't agree with you at all, the ones that love big government, that are out there spending all this money, that are looking for more and more, that are playing the game that it's meant to be played, do any of them actually believe it's not going to collapse? Or do they all know that? Is, even those people, are they, do, they, do they, they actually state that that's where we're headed? Oh, yeah. Um, everyone that I've brought the topic up with um, has you know, acknowledged that this cannot go on forever. Um, this is gonna. This is gonna end. And usually they're kind of they're kind of subtle about it. They say, for example, it can't go on forever. They don't say, yeah, there's gonna be zombies and flames, and it's just gonna be an absolute. Night. They don't. They don't really. I think say what they think. But no, they acknowledge um, that there's uh, no way to fix it. Um, that mathematically, um, this we can't grow our way out of this. For example, and they acknowledge that tax rates need to keep going up, up, and up. And um, you can never, for example, pay off pension obligations. Um, uh, quite a few um, people, you know, that are decision makers um, are preppers. Um, one of them in particular. Um, tells you so. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I got to keep his even even hinting about his position. Um, yeah, I on the down low, but I mean, he's to to say he's an active prepper is putting it mildly. And um, and so, yeah, they all. They all know it, and these are the the upper level people. The, the mid level people, um, you know, they they may or may not know it, and they they're kind of living their lives, and they're trying not to think about it. The lower level um, state and local employees, you know, they they're not thinking about this. They're watching American Idol like the rest of America, so they're you know they're kind of disengaged. But the, the people who see the trends, the people who know um, the the brick wall that you were talking about, the people whose job it is to figure out how to pay for all this stuff. Um, they're shrugging. They're shrugging, and and they got they got no answers, and um, that is really telling. So you know, horse's mouth material. It's it's coming out of the horse's mouth, and uh, there's no way to grow out of this. They whistle past the graveyard. What a what a terrific phrase that is. You know, when people are they say they're not scared of ghosts, and it's midnight, and they're walking through a cemetery, and they're they're whistling through the graveyard because they're saying da da da. There's no ghosts, so I don't need to be worried. Ha ha ha. You know that kind of thing. Well, they're whistling past the graveyard, so um, uh, yeah, 
it's <laughs> that's one of the reasons I became a prepper and 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 wrote this story is because it's so powerful when folks like this are saying and doing things that they're doing. Um, there's no other conclusion you can come to. None. Yeah, no, there isn't, and that's well, and, and but I think what's like to me the most frightening thing about that is the very people who are telling you, oh, but this is good for you, oh, we should do this. Even the people advocating for it they, that made their entire life based on promoting this agenda are going, yeah, but in the end, we're screwed. Yeah. Right? So if that person that has as much visibility as you could ever have, at least into the programs they run, know their own programs are doomed, why would anybody believe for a second that it would be any different? Yeah. <laughs> Because, I mean, what possible defense do you have at that point? Yeah, it's just wishful thinking. It's it's too big of a scary idea for most people uh, to grasp. And, and in fairness to everybody out there that's struggling with it, it took me several years to, to come to grips with this. And, and, take, and I started with baby steps, and I kept constantly telling myself, geez, don't overreact, and is this reasonable? I mean... You keep listening to this Jack Spirko guy in this podcast. Is he some <laughs> crazy cult leader? He's going to tell me to like, you know, tattoo something on my forehead and follow him, you know, or something like that. And I thought, you know, I've got to be reasonable about this, but it, it takes a while um, to to ease it. Well, of this. course it does, because it doesn't make. If you're an average American, hardworking average American, whether you're happy with your government or not, doesn't matter. It doesn't make any sense when you first hear things like. The country's going to go bankrupt. People, go, how, they can just print more money, right? And then you learn about printing money, and then, well, that falls apart. So, well, then we can always borrow more money, and then you realize that we, by borrowing it, we're printing it, and it goes to the same hole. And then you start looking at the numbers, and you start doing the math, and then you listen to some ass clown like Bernanke say, but, you know, oh, this $16 trillion number, we, we shouldn't be worried about that, because $10 trillion of it is intergovernmental debt, Oh, super. <laughs> oh, okay. So that's fine. And then you go, well, what the hell is intergovernmental debt? And you, you look at it, and the majority of it's Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. So if we can't pay that back, there don't have any countries pissed off at us. We just can't take care of the people that are depending on it that put their livelihoods into it. And then you start saying, well, where the hell did that money go? And then you start saying, well, if $10 trillion is intergovernmental, and even if I believed your bullshit, what about $6 trillion? What's our plan to get rid of the $6 trillion? Oh, we don't have a plan. There, there's, I mean, anybody that says it's okay, you say, well, what's our plan to reduce our debt? They're like, we don't have one. We, I mean, Ben Bernanke would tell you to your face, if you say, will we one day owe $30 trillion? Yes. I mean, give him credit. He'd be honest about that. He'd make a case for you why it's okay. And at some point, you have to go, that process mathematically as you stated cannot continue yeah and think about this um every incentive every uh what's the word i guess everything out there in the establishment and the world culture business politics everything is pointing you towards just saying this is okay this is going to work out what's the worst that can happen this is america nothing bad ever happens here and I mean, it's it's TV, it's the education system, it's everything. I'm not talking gigantic conspiracies. I'm just saying that, you know, preppers are crazy people. Well, I saw that on TV. So in in yeah, boy, those preppers are crazy. I, you know, I thought when that whole thing started up with Doomsday Prepper thing, and I met the producer, that it was just a bunch of Hollywood executives 
giving people what they thought they wanted to see, and, and messing with the 2% of preppers that are mentally damaged. Because 2% of everybody's mentally damaged, right? So you, you find the lowest common denominator, and then you look at, make them look even more. And I thought it was just theatrics and entertainment. I actually believe now, after watching it for all this period of time, that it was at least given a little shove by our benevolent leaders to discredit the movement toward preparedness. Because the last thing leadership wants during a crisis is a prepared society. Let's say benevolent leadership wants, because they want what? A good crisis to not go to waste. Well, if everybody's prepared, when you go, well, we're not going to be able to pay this, and we're not going to be able to pay that, then what do the people do? They go, so? Yeah. Don't do it. We don't care. And then you have nothing. The bully has now had a bloody nose and had his fingers broken, right? So the, the, it, it, my, my belief is that our only ways to save the republic right now are actually to go ahead and accept what we've done wrong and pay for it. I mean, that's it, because if we don't do it soon, then the laws of economics, mathematics, and logic will do it for us. And when it happens that way, it generally doesn't work out very well. Yeah, exactly right. No, we need to, we need to own up to this. And you're, you're, you're so right about every, uh, I don't know, every media outlet trying to make people think that preppers are crazy because that's the absolute worst thing um, for the people who are running things is for people to be independent um it, it it always has been look at history that's that's what they you know they squish out uh, and and come down on is that kind of stuff well i mean right now they're talking about the sequestration they're going to cut 10 percent indiscriminately across the board you know what my response is so really i mean this is what you're worried about so we grew spending by a trillion one and a half trillion dollars uh between bush and obama Right? I'm not putting Bush up. I'm not putting Obama down. I'm just saying the mathematical reality is that Obama added a $1. trillion addition to the annual spending in the country. And what you're telling me is we can't cut $300 billion of that. And it's not even $300 billion of that. I'll get to that in a second. We can't do that. We can't go back to what we were spending four years ago. No, we can't even go back to spending 170% more than we were to without destroying the economy. That's, that's the argument. And then the other side of this is these cuts. Do you know government cuts, Glenn? Jeez. You, you've been in this business. What is a government cut? A government cut includes the planned increase that you don't do. So if I came to you and said, dude, will you help me out with my finances? And you said, sure, Jack. Well, what's your problem? And I go, well, I make 100000 a year. And we're spending 125000 a year. And you said, well, Jack, it's simple. You're going to have to cut your expenses. And I came back to you two weeks later, and you said, okay, did you do it? And I said, yeah. And you go, how much are we going to spend? And I said, 130000 next year. And you go, dude, I just told you to cut your, your spending. You, you actually went up. right? And I go, but see, we, were, we, we had planned to spend 150000 next year. So we're only growing spending by 5000 versus 25000 That's a cut. Yep. Only the government, only the government would call that a cut. Yeah, and you ought to see me go insane when I'm the few times I'm around TV news anymore because uh, I can't handle it. When you sit there and you, you see some, you know, some model uh, news anchor saying there's going to be a cut of whatever percent, and I know what baseline budgeting is, and I know that it's not a cut, I go insane. And but you see, most people out there just believe that it's a cut because that's all they've heard about, and. Yeah. Um, and, and, and children will go without health care. Teachers will be laid off. And, you know, let's say it was a real cut. You see, most people have never run a business. I've had business decisions I've had to make, and I've had people come to me and go, you've got to take 10% out of this department. Fine. Everybody gets a 10% pay cut. Done. 
You still have a job. You can still get by. Some of you may leave. If you leave, I can pay everybody else better. Hey, that's It's that simple. I mean, so you're, I'm supposed to believe that I, the private sector can have its wages cut all the time, but if we cut the wages of somebody that is a teacher or something, you know, people say, well, teachers don't make that much money. Yeah, go see what they make in New York City. Yeah. Right? I mean, so uh, these cuts... If they were applied uniformly, which is what they're supposed they're not going to do it. They're going to make victims so they can say, look what they did, right? But, I mean, even that, it's so simple. Okay, fine. We're going to cut it. I think it's a 9% cut is the number on the general budget and 13% on the military budget. Fine. Build one less aircraft carrier. We kind of have enough of those. And give everybody a 10% pay cut. We're done. Yeah, and here's the cynical thing, and this is from my, my political perspective. This is what I marvel at. Look at some of the the cuts um, that are being announced now um, before the March 1st sequesterization. The one that was announced yesterday, this is so cynical, and this is annoying as, as I'll get out. Um, the president announced that he doesn't have enough money to keep uh, a bunch of illegal aliens who have uh, been detained, um, uh, some of whom have committed crimes. We don't have enough money because of the sequesterization thing, so he let um, quite a few of them go. Um, and, and that's just really cynical. Way. Even though it hasn't even happened yet, yeah. right? And, and let me explain what you need to deal with an illegal alien being detained, and understand this is not even an immigration issue, being detained for the commission of an additional crime. A bus ride to Mexico. That's cheap. And I guarantee you, if the President of the United States was honest and said, we're out of money and we really can't afford to do anything here, I'm looking for Americans to voluntarily buy bus tickets. We could get rid of every single criminal illegal alien, right? And I know some people are like, well, they're here illegally. They already committed a crime. I'm letting that one go. I'm talking about people who broke into somebody's house or did some other, because these people, most of them, are not being picked up by ICE for being here. If that was true, you wouldn't see 20 or 30 of them standing in a Home Depot parking lot every day, right? So they're not going around picking them up. So if you're in custody, odds are you got picked up on drug charges, gang charges, criminal activity of some sort. So we're talking about people that have committed a crime in addition to being here illegally. Why are we doing anything other than loading up a Greyhound and heading south? Yeah, um, voters. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. Human I know. interest stories. Um, human interest stories. Crying, um, uh, tears on TV and a bunch of soccer moms saying, that's so mean, I'm going to vote against the people who did this. And I, I'm, I'm trying – not to be cynical, but there's, that's the answer. I mean, the polling indicates that's the answer. Yeah, absolutely it's the answer. And, and again, I mean, I, I don't know why, regardless of where you are on the immigration issue, we can't delineate between people that are here and people that are here that violated state or federal law. Those people should not be – other than let's go ahead and prosecute them for it, put them in jail, and when they're done, they get a bus ride. But if you can't afford to put them in jail, just give them a bus ride. I, you know, and I promise you that'll start to have an impact. Now, I have a, one more state nullification idea for you. I want to bounce off you. This is kind of in the the left field type of thing. That is it really practical? But I think it could be uh, state level deportation for people that violate a crime in that state and are also there illegally. It would work like this: um, I pick you up and I go, dude, you just broke into somebody's house. We have evidence and we're prosecuting you for it. And we put you in front of a jury of your peers and you're convicted of breaking and entering. And you are also here illegally. You're from, let's not even be unfair to Mexico, you're here from Canada illegally, and you broke into somebody's house. Canadians do crimes too. They have a prison system there. And uh, I say, okay, now here's how this is going to work. We're going to put you in jail for two weeks, just two weeks, little token sentence. 
and then we're going to parole you. But we're going to parole you with the condition of parole, not that you hold a job, not that you check in with your parole officer, that you no longer reside in our state. If you violate parole, then you're going to jail for five years. I love it. Um, I, the, the only downside, the first thing that came to my mind is that, you know, all the all the other states that you'd be, quote, dumping people into um, would get all mad and they'd be in, in the House and the Senate and they would, you know, start killing all the bills you wanted to build your pork products or pork projects. But I, I'm actually OK with those. Actually, those bills yeah. getting killed. Well, they um, might actually say, why are all these people getting dumped here and pass their own similar laws? I have an even better idea. Not only do you have to leave, we're going to give you a free bus ride, but the bus goes to D.C. <laughs> and, and when the bus stops in front of the Capitol building, an officer on the bus says, inside that round building are the people with all the answers as for what you're supposed to do with yourself. Go in there and ask them what you're supposed to do now, but don't come back to Texas, Alabama, whatever. <laughs> I mean, because here's my thing. When I had to deal with some political crap, I learned that if I didn't have the authority to solve a problem, but somebody else did above me, that the only way I could make that person solve that problem is to make it their problem. I had to defer the problem to them to where it was an annoying problem for them, and then they would fix it. So I just say we deport everybody to D.C. That's fantastic. The bus could stop at uh, the District of Columbia Human Services uh, building, and you could yep. get an application for... DC uh, benefits of some kind. Of course, we'd end up paying federal tax money for that, but set that aside. We're going to pay it anyway. We're going to pay it anyway. Um, I love it. Um, it and, and again, before I hear from my libertarian friends or whatever, this is not for somebody picked up for being here illegally. This is for somebody that committed a crime and is also, it's, that's what you call, and Glenn, you're a lawyer. Is that what, not what you call an aggravating circumstance? Yeah. Yeah, committing a crime is aggravating, yes. <laughs> no, but I'm saying, like, so if I break into your house and steal your stuff, and then if I break into your house and I steal your stuff and break all your windows, right, I've committed the same crime. Let's say I broke one window to get in, in one instance, or I broke all your windows out of spite. I've created breaking and entering and vandalism. But the fact that I've vandalized beyond the – so then when I get sentenced for that – the judge will take that. I'm, you tell, I'm a layman, right? But I think this is an exact uh, understanding of aggravating circumstance in a crime. Because I've gone above and beyond what would normally be associated with that crime, there's an aggravating circumstance, and that will be weighted toward a stricter sentence. Whereas if um, I committed a crime with my vehicle and I didn't intend to, I may still get convicted of that crime, but that would be a mitigating circumstance. So all I'm saying is you're already here illegally committing a crime makes that an aggravating circumstance. Yeah, you're exactly right. It certainly does. And and boom, I love the parole idea because it's, you know, <laughs> yeah, you can violate parole and you can come back to this state, but yeah. Uh, why We're not even going to look for you. But if you do happen to get picked up, then you're going to jail for, you know, the maximum of the sentence that you had. That's a, So it would just be a violation of parole on a previously convicted. So you have to actually put this person in front of a jury of their peers you would have to try them. You would have to get a conviction. Of course, they could sign off and, and plead guilty if they wanted to to accelerate the process. Many of them would, especially when you said in two weeks we'll let you go, but you got to leave. And a free right? bus ticket. They want the free, free bus, bus ticket. Free bus ticket to D.C. It's nice up there. You'll like it. There's white buildings. There's people in suits. They have all the answers. It'll be great. Some of them even speak you know, your language, whether it be Spanish or French or, or German or whatever it is. Because like, everybody wants to come down on the Mexicans. And if you're in the Southwest, it's, it's our largest segment of illegal aliens. But they're not the only people here illegally. 
They really aren't. Oh yeah, absolutely. I love it. I I love it. In in Jack's world, uh, this this works. I mean, this is great. I love it. <laughs> I don't know that it's practical, but it, it, the reason it's not practical is political will, not because of uh, I, don't, I can't think of a single legal restriction that would prevent this. Because I'm not I'm not walking up to you going show me. That's what they would say. You know, show me your. No, I'm saying that you've been convicted of a crime. And during the court process, we've determined that you were in the country illegally. We've added a mitigating set, uh, stand, uh, cer- or an aggravating circumstance to your sentence. This is the conditions of your parole. You're free to come back. You're just going to jail for much longer. Yeah. Because what would you do if you were that guy? I would. Oh, you mean all I got to do is like leave Texas and, and and I'm free? Yeah. Yeah, I get a bus ride. I get a go to dude, right? Yeah. Uh, and I'll give you a bus ticket. I'll give you a bus ticket. You can go to, you know what would be great? It goes along with my other project. You get to pick. You can go to D.C., Chicago, New York City, Sacramento, or uh, Hartford. <laughs> you could pick one, and you could go there. You could, you could even take the, uh, the naughty list um, from your uh, moving project, and uh, that, those would be the states you could go to. So we're, we're stripping out the good people from the states. And well, in the bus has to and the bus has to turn around and come back, so anybody that wants to come can get on the bus for free to come back. That's saving gas. That's recycling. That's good for the environment. <laughs> we could just do tours, right? Because you're not sure you want to come to Texas or Alabama or whatever. So people that want it, you get a free one-way trip. You don't have to pay your way back. Yeah. All the problems solved in one podcast, man. Without you, I couldn't have done it. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what we didn't tell people? Book Five's coming out. It's coming out near the end of March. We told them kind of what it's about. We didn't tell them what the name of that book is. Oh my goodness! Uh, Two hundred ninety-nine days, um, and uh, the 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 name of book five is the visitors. So two hundred ninety-nine days, yeah. And uh, two hundred ninety-nine days dot com tell you everything about the book. Um, and there are a bunch of uh, threads on the TSP forum about it, which is another good source of information. People should be on the forum anyway, so uh, I encourage that. And maybe we need to tell people on some of those threads there might be a little bit of a need for spoiler alerts. Oh, yes. No, and I appreciate that. Um, for, for the book-specific threads, for one through four, and I'll start one for five, it says in the heading, in brackets, spoiler alert. Yeah, I didn't do that at first, and, and that was uh, oversight. But you know what? I don't know. I, I, you know. I haven't written a bunch of books before, so I didn't know I should do the spoiler alert thing. So <laughs> I think you're doing just fine. I was kind of saving this to the end because I wanted to tell you this because I think you'll get a kick out of this. When when you first released like the first two books, um, I got tons of people from the audience that said, these books are great. Thanks for telling us about it. In the past couple months, I've gotten tons of emails from people exactly the opposite. I read this book series, and I heard about this survival podcast thing in the books, and I was wondering if it was real, and I looked it up, and it is. So you're starting to reach way out of the nuclear community now that you kind of launched this thing in, and you're actually pulling people back in. So it's like you cast the net out in the the nearby shores, and now you're starting to actually pull in the fish uh, from further out. So that means you're accomplishing your mission, and hey, I appreciate it because, it, well, it's good for me, too. I am a capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, TSP gets a ton of credit uh, in the book because, as we talked about in one of our previous uh, talks um, on your podcast, without TSP, um, I would have never been a prepper, would have never done the book. And um, people need a good, reasonable, rational, no tinfoil hat resource to learn about stuff, and that's TSP and the forum. It just is. 
And I would add to that list 299 days and the entire series. And we're now at a, almost at, uh, by the end of this coming month, we'll be at the 50% way through the series. And uh, what's kind of the timeline for the release of the last five books? Um, we should have book 10 out um, by, uh, my goal is December 1st, 2013. And I want to want to finish it up in, in 2013. And, uh, you know, because i got to get this stuff out before more of the stuff that I predict starts <laughs> happening. Well, and I mean, that, so that means that, okay, book five hits us in March, book 10 hits us in December. So everything else falls somewhere in between. Yeah, and it's kind of a to-be-determined thing. It depends on a bunch of stuff and a bunch of publisher stuff and everything else. So it's hard to predict with uh, with certainty. That's the one thing that's been hard to predict. The whole part about a partial collapse has been easy to predict. <laughs> 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 but when your book's going to come out, that's a little more difficult. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I'd say they're very similar. You, you know that you know that it's coming out. You just don't know exactly when. <laughs> It's exactly like the economic collapse. We know it's coming. We just don't know exactly when or exactly what it's going to look like. But I think you take a very objective look at the realities of what causes it and the way people will behave during it. So I really appreciate you being with us again today, Glenn. Oh, my pleasure. Love it. Absolutely love it, Jack. And, folks, this has been Jack Spirico along with Glenn Tate, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living.